Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is so good to see your faces. I didn't get to be here last Sunday, so this is my uh, first maskless Sunday uh, in a while. And y'all look good. You look great. Really good. <laughs> really glad to see you. Uh, if I don't know you, my name's uh, Ashley, one of the pastors here as well. Um, and in the theme of just uh, celebrating good things and uh, giving God thanks, um, yes, we are so thankful for the news at Emma Henley. For those of you who've been praying um, on behalf of Drew and their family, thank you for praying for them. And also just want to let you know, those of you who are members got an email from us, but a number of you may not have. Um, next Sunday will be uh, Chris's first uh, Sunday back here, so he'll be back next Sunday, as will Marty, and it will be so good to have them back here um, with us. So thank you all for um, hanging in and um, being the church as you have done without skipping a beat, just as we should do. Um, and uh, good on you for, for that. And thanks be to God for um, the rest that they've both been able to have. We're so thankful for all those things. Uh, if you have Bibles, we're going to be looking at Psalm 93. Today is Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday before the uh, start of the Advent season. And so this... Um, Psalm was uh, clearly not chosen, chosen at random, but is in honor of the day. And we're going to read two texts, actually. We're going to read Psalm 93 and then skip over and look at Mark 4, which I think um, is saying something similar, though saying it very differently. So we'll read those texts in light of one another and pray. Psalm 93, the Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is girded with strength. He has established the world, and it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, more majestic than the thunders of mighty waters, more majestic than the waves of the sea. Majestic on high is the Lord. Your decrees are very sure, and holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And then if you want to turn over, you can turn with me to Mark 4. This is Mark 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, He, Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Lord, we bless you. We bless, Lord, the reading of your word. Thank you, Jesus the gift of this time and space. We ask you now, Lord, to turn our hearts, our minds, Lord, towards prayer, what it means to pray. 
how and why, Lord, you've invited us and called us to pray. Holy Spirit, will you help us to see Jesus in and through these stories, through these texts, Lord? I pray, Lord, that we would be drawn out and into your peace, Lord, out of whatever worry or anxiety, distractions, God, that we carry with us, the storms, Lord, that surround all of us and each of us. Lord, draw us into something peaceful and steady, into your presence, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Amen. So for the last few weeks uh, here at Trinity, we've been talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, specifically through prayer. And um, thinking about prayer together by looking at the Psalms. So each week we've, we've read and preached through one of the Psalms. The Psalms, of course, being our um, oldest and original prayer book. These are the oldest prayers and songs of the church. We've been singing them, saying them together for a really long time. Uh, they shape us and form us. They're meant to. Not just to teach us how to pray or what to pray, but help remind us why we pray. What it feels like to be people who pray. When I read Psalm 93, Mark 4 is the story that comes to mind. So the psalmist is saying something that in some ways is very different from what we read about in Mark 4. They look on the surface and sound, of course, very different, but they are, in their essence, very similar. They're, in effect, saying the same things, the psalmist and Mark, but doing it very differently. Uh, in Psalm 93, we're reminded that God is king, that he's enthroned in the heavens, that his rule is sure and certain but that also there is a raging sea. There are floodwaters that are always churning and welling up um, sort of, you know, beneath him and in the world, and that he has authority over those things. Mark is reminding us of something similar, but, of course, saying it very differently. The Bible is sort of preoccupied with this um, image of the sea. There's a lot. Um, there are a lot of stories about the sea and the floodwaters, and that's because... Um, these are people, of course, who lived on the sea, so there's a really practical reason. A lot of their stories took place next to water because um, the Sea of Galilee was where Jesus spent a lot of his time. But it's also because in the minds of ancient people, uh, the sea played a symbolic, a representative role. It was, um, it was for them a kind of symbol or image of the chaos of life. And so they wrote a lot of songs about it. They wrote a lot of poetry about it. They told a lot of stories about it. Um, it was their attempt at dealing with this like primordial, baked into the fabric of the universe feeling of chaos that always threatens our lives. It's just kind of like baked into the way things are. There's this lurking, looming chaos that always threatens to like overrun the world. And a raging sea is a pretty apt description of what that feels like. It's a terrifying thing. I um, grew up in the mountains and don't particularly love the idea of being out on the water. It's, uh, it can be scary, you know. Um, I love the ocean, but prefer, you know, the sure ground most of the time. And I get it. I mean, when I'm out there on the water, if, particularly at night, you know, the ocean at night, creepy, you know. There's a lot going on in there and you can't see any of it, you know. It's a lot of what life was like on the Sea of Galilee, these were people, of course, who depended on the sea for their livelihood, for their sustenance. So it's strange, right? Because it's kind of both things. It is, um, at one and the same time, a source of life, something that gave them what they needed, it provided for them, gave them food, among other things. 
And then at the same time, on the other hand, it was a constant threat. And kind of depending on the day or the time or the hour, you never knew which one it was going to be. Would it today be calm and still and, you know, this great giver of fish and provision? Or would it be a stormy day and therefore, you know, a threat against my very life? And as I was thinking about that and sort of telling myself that, the truth is, um, I think a lot of us experience our lives that way. And we don't have to live on the sea to feel that way. We live lives that are very full. Some might argue dangerously so. So full that we are constantly sort of distracted, preoccupied, doing everything we can to stay on top of everything. And uh, if you're like me, the truth is, for many of us, our lives are full of good things that we love, that we have chosen our work, the people in our lives, friends, our family, kids. All these are things, good things that you love, that you wanted, and therefore you have. And yet, depending on the day, <laughs> can be the very things that threaten to undo you. Or is that just me? <laughs> they can't just be, can't just be me. Do you know what I'm saying? I can, within the same day, be giving God all thanks for my life. My look at my kids. Oh, love them. Quiver. It's full. Thank God. Feeling so thankful. And then, like that. Five minutes later, I am just undone. You've ruined my life. <laughs> You are a constant threat to my peace, my sanity, not just my kids. All of us feel that way about any number of things. Can, whatever peace we have, it's on the surface, but there's always this chaos right under the surface of it, threatening our peace. And as much as it's true that as 21st century people, that's probably particularly true for us because our lives are arguably way too full. We are busier than we should be. Life is more full than it was ever meant to be. We're more distracted, more preoccupied. We are constantly distracted, and the world would have our every thought to be captured by something else. So that the feeling is like you can never, ever keep up. And that may be particularly true of us, but it's not only true of us. The facts are chaos has always been a part of life. And all people have been threatened by it experienced it in one way or another. And what I love about this psalm and this story in Mark is that I believe it is from the Lord a reminder of who he is in relation to that chaos and who he is for us and to us in the midst of it. And without ever mentioning it directly, either in the psalm or in Mark's story, I think there is a really important reminder about the nature of prayer, why we pray, and how we're meant to pray. So what I want to do is look at two things, specifically about prayer in relationship both to the psalm and the story, and tell you two things. They're not on the slide, so you'll just have to hear me out. Through prayer, the Holy Spirit grants us, I think, two things when we pray. One, we have access to the rest of God. And we'll look at this in a minute. And two, secondly, we're granted authority over chaos through prayer. So through prayer, we have access to the rest of God, 
and we have authority over chaos. I want us to look at the text for a second, and then we'll look at these two points. The psalm begins with this image of a world firmly established and God on his throne. Everything is as it should be. There's order. And then there's these like churning waters threatening that stability and that peace. Similarly, in Mark's story, Jesus and the disciples enter into the boat to go out onto the Sea of Galilee, and it is presumably a very calm, still, and peaceful day, a good day for a boat ride. Jesus and the disciples get into the boat, go out into the sea, and presumably it's still enough for Jesus to fall asleep. He's tired. Uh, If you read all of Mark 4, you know Jesus is tired because he's been doing Jesus things, you know, teaching and healing people, and he needs a nap, (laughs) apparently. Um, And really lovely thought, actually, to think that Jesus could keep company with you in a way that would allow him to rest. And so that's what he does. He gets onto the boat with the disciples, and he falls asleep in the stern. And while he's asleep, a storm um, is brewing and starts to rage. It's beating the boat. It's terrifying all of a sudden, this huge swell. And Jesus, meanwhile, remains asleep. He's out. The disciples get terrified, as you would if you thought your boat was going under. And at one point, one of them decides to go check in with Jesus. And they say to him, don't you care that we're perishing? Not like, Jesus. Jesus. (laughs) I'm sorry to bother you, but we got an issue up here. It's looking bad. Probably going down. The way Mark retells it anyway is their immediate, the thing that they want to say, they've waited so long to wake him up that they're frustrated by what they perceive at this point to be indifference. So what they say to him is, don't you even care that we're perishing? And what I find fascinating about that is that I see a little bit of myself in it. Because when I feel overwhelmed and very stressed out, almost everyone becomes an enemy. Do you know what I mean? You're all a threat to the peace that I would have otherwise if it weren't for you and you and you when I feel overwhelmed. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus has become an enemy and it happens to all of us. It's just like human nature. I don't know how Jesus responded. We don't know what he said or if he smiled or if he apologized. (laughs) But he promptly gets up, goes out to the deck and says out over the storm, peace, be still. And it was. The psalmist says it this way. Mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. In other words, both writers, Mark and the psalmist, are trying to remind us that God both has authority over the chaos that we experience and that he has within himself rest that we have access to that we're meant to have access to. He intends to give. And the way that I experience both his authority in the midst of chaos and access to the rest that he has is through prayer. This is why and how we pray. Because the chaos, y'all, is a given. It always has been. It always will be. I don't care if you... Quit your job and decide to Wendell Berry yourself to Kentucky. Chaos will find you. I grew up in Arkansas. Doesn't get much more laid back than that, you know what I mean? 
Even my people experience chaos from time to time. It's everywhere. And Jesus has not promised that we would avoid chaos in the same way that he has not promised, contrary to what you may have heard otherwise, that we would avoid suffering or pain. Those things are given. It's a part of life in a broken world. What he has done is ensure that we have provision for passing through those things in the form of his authority and, in this case, also of his rest. What we have to do, though, is access it. We have to take hold of it, and the way that we do that is through prayer. So I want to talk about those two points. Firstly, access to God's rest. What do we mean when we talk about the rest of God? The writer of Hebrews, if you've read Hebrews 4, talks about this idea of God's rest. It captivates the Jewish imagination. It's why they Sabbath so well. Because for Jews, Sabbath has always been about a lot more than just stopping. It's not just the cessation of activity. For them, when we Sabbath and when we stop, out of recognition and honor and worship of God, there is in that stopping a fullness, a life, that we don't have access to otherwise. It's full of something. And that something is peace and joy It's healing and restorative. For example, in Genesis, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth and he did it for these six days, and then if you were to ask most Christians, we would say, and on the seventh day, he took a nap. And that's why we nap on Sundays, because God did. So we nap. I love if you nap on Sundays. It's a great reason to take a nap. I love the way that we Sabbath. But we often forget, and I think this is fascinating. I'm saying this of myself. If you look at the text carefully, It says, on the seventh day, God finished the work and he rested. So on day seven, God does something to finish creation and then he rests. And the Jews have always said that that finishing was the gift of rest. He created and gave to the world the gift of his rest, something that was generative and healing and restorative, the ability to enjoy creation, not just to do, but to enjoy So when Jesus is in this boat and he naps, it's because he possesses within himself a steadiness and stillness of soul that is somehow independent of his circumstance and the world around him. The conditions around him do not determine the condition of his soul. It stays steady, still, and peaceful. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, because he's God, so there's that you know, little advantage that he had there. True. Yes. When Jesus is napping and the disciples come to him and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus gets up and he steals the storm. And then he comes back. And you can imagine if you had been the one to go to him and say, don't you care that we're dying? And then he gets up and he calms the storm and he turns around to face you. Imagine how you might feel. Okay, okay, okay. I I see that you care. Prior to the storm, who was Jesus? If you had asked Peter, James, Paul, they would have said, he's he's our Lord, he's our Messiah, he's our provider, he's our healer, he's our teacher. But in the midst of the storm, who does Jesus become? Our great abandoner. The one who has forsaken us and forgotten us. 
And we can put that on the disciples, but the truth is it lives in all of us. We've all been there. And here's the thing. Jesus is not frustrated with them for being terrified at the storm. Storms are terrifying. He's not asking you to be some sort of Christian robot who goes about your life pretending that the hard things aren't hard and the bad things aren't bad and the scary things aren't scary. It's very frustrating to other people around you. If you are going through a very hard time and you are pretending on the outside not to be going through a hard time, you're not doing anyone, including yourself, any favors. It's okay. You can be scared. You can feel overwhelmed. Does it make you less a Christian or less faithful or a coward? Storms are scary and nobody wants to die. Jesus knows these things. What he corrects in them is the assumption that because he is at rest, he doesn't care. Or that he isn't with them and for them. Jesus is not frustrated with them for coming to petition him and wake him up. That's prayer. That's what we're meant to do. I go through a storm, I petition God. That's faithfulness. What the trick is holding on to the assumption that God is with me and for me in the midst of this storm. That's the faith part. That's what's going to keep me tethered to him. The rest of God was available to the disciples in the boat. But they mistook it for indifference. And therefore they saw everything happening around them as a threat. And there's a lesson for me and you in that. Jesus napping is not just for him. Jesus being at rest with the disciples in the boat was in an effort, I believe, to assure them that they had access to something that they need, that they had access to something that he had within himself that they needed, which was the ability to be at rest, to be steady, to be still. I can't just watch Jesus do it and try to model it, that won't ever work. What I need is the Holy Spirit to purpose it, to cultivate it, to create it inside of me, to give it to me. And that happens through prayer. So when I pray, sometimes I imagine myself in the midst of whatever hard thing I'm going through, I imagine Jesus at rest, napping. And I ask him, can you give me access to your peace? so that I can be still in the midst of this. Because it's the peace inside of you, it was the peace inside of Jesus that changed the situation. And he wants you to know that you have it. You have access to it anyway. There's this, um, I wish we had more time to talk about this, we don't. A really great book called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan. If you suspect that you are someone in need of whatever this mystery is, um, it's a great book. He makes it very practical and tangible, so I commend it to you. I want to say this secondly. We have, through prayer, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, been given authority over chaos. Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean, necessarily, that you possess the kind of authority in your faith to radically change your circumstances whenever you decide to. I wish that I could get up on some mornings when my children are 
wiling out, losing their whole minds, that I could walk into my living room and say, in the name of Jesus, silence, be still. And they would be magically transformed into like, I don't know, laughing, smiling, kids who want to meditate. I don't know what I want them to do, but you know that. I wish that I, I don't have that. Maybe one day. I'll keep trying. I'll let you know. But I suspect, just in the same way you don't have the ability to enter into whatever stressful circumstance you have and just, you know, point your spirit fingers at it and transform it into something else. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. But there is a kind of authority that you need to know that you have. You cannot afford to forget Over and over again, the Bible tells a story of this chaos at work in the world and God taking authority over that chaos and turning it into something that services his people. He puts it into the interest of his people. That's redemption. I'm going to take this thing, I'm going to reclaim it, and I'm going to put it into the service of good. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells a story. In the very beginning, creation, this formless, void, water, wad. Mess, tohu vabohu in the Hebrew. This teeming, chaotic thing that the Holy Spirit moves over, hovers around, and repurposes. Creates a world in which you can live for your sake and his glory. He creates a world. In the story of the Exodus, we run up against the sea, an impossible divide. Cannot move through it. Death for sure awaits us in the midst of it. And it becomes, by God's grace and glory, a bridge onto the other side of something. Similarly, in this story, in Mark, this storm that is raging becomes, because of Jesus, a sea that still is glass the disciples are able to pass over. And here's my point. There is for you, in the midst of whatever you're going for, you have access to the Spirit of God and His authority to change the way that you are relating to your circumstance rather than seeing it constantly as your enemy that must be vanquished. Chaos is my enemy and I must vanquish it. I must gain victory over it every day. And many of us live our lives that way. I had to defeat it. The stress, defeat it. The anxiety, beat it, drown it, kill it, get rid of it. And that's our attitude. What if instead you could remember that you are a bearer of the Holy Spirit. You have access to the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And therefore, you have within you the ability to take that circumstance, invite God into it, and allow Him to turn it into something, an opportunity in which you can be blessed, His kingdom can come, something that you don't expect might happen. And y'all, this matters. This matters. The attitude of seeing everything as an enemy or a threat, it postures us in a certain way. And here's the good news, the gospel truth. You don't have to feel threatened all the time. You don't have enemies around every corner. Your life is not your enemy. Your job is not your enemy. Your kids are not your enemy. Your anxiety is not your enemy. Jesus is Lord. And so there is an opportunity by virtue of his spirit for you to see the thing that threatens you changed, redeemed, 
I want to give you one quick example, a small one in my own life. I was not too long ago visiting with a spiritual director. Uh, and if you grew up Baptist, a spiritual director is someone that you sit with occasionally um, to process your life. Not like a therapist. Therapists are great. But in addition to a therapist, sometimes we go spiritual directors. And from a very Christian point of view, they listen to you and they tell you how God's at work in your life, give you direction. Um, I grew up Baptist. I didn't know spiritual directors were a thing for most of my life. But they are, and a real gift. So I was with this woman, and I was telling her about some of my own fear. And I was saying to her, I feel afraid when I think about this thing, and this fear has a voice, and it is a giant bully in my life. It, the fear is a bully. I feel bullied by this voice and this fear. And she said to me, interesting, have you ever thought about, bear with me, asking the voice or thinking about your fear in a different way, maybe asking yourself, what are you trying to protect? Not why are you against me? Why do you hate me? But what are you trying to protect? And here's what I would say to you. In that moment, I went from having yet another adversary, which was my fear, my anxiety, for which I felt a lot of shame and guilt, to feeling more neutral. Like, oh, I think there is something at stake. And part of me is trying to say, I don't want to lose that thing. I want to hold on to it. So now I had an ally. And it changed the way that I felt like I was going to interact with and engage with my fear. This is something I have authority over. I get to say, because of who Jesus is, I don't have to feel threatened by the circumstance. I think even my fear and my anxiety is in the service of my good. <gasps> Rather than it being evidence of your immaturity or the fragility of your soul, what if the reason that you are afraid and feel anxious is because your body is trying to tell you something that is also in the service of your good? And that the same God who created the world and split the sea and stilled the storm is the same God who is over your life, who has the power and ability to take this circumstance and put it into the service of your good. That's who he is. That's what he does. So when I pray now, sometimes I imagine Jesus standing out over the thing that overwhelms me, that makes me feel defensive and adversarial, and I see him with his arms out, and he says, over that thing, peace, be still. He's not warring with it. He doesn't have to. He already did that. The war's over. He won it. He's God. So he gets to say to it, be still. And so do you. You don't have to go to war. He already did that. You have peace. So entrust your fears and your anxiety to him. We ought to pray, y'all. Can't just think the thoughts or know the stuff. We have to ask him for it, just like the disciples did. Advent is coming, which means Christmas is coming, which means it's the most magical and stressful time of the year. You gotta have a plan. If you do not lead the chaos, it will lead you. So figure out how you're going to pray.
through this season. Let's stand together if we can.